This summer, we have been going through a sermon series called Witnesses, and we have been looking at uh, the early chapters in the book of Acts at how the earliest followers of Jesus functioned as Jesus' witnesses after he ascended into heaven. Um, And and we talked about kind of the, the heart of what it means to be a witness is to testify to what you've seen and heard, to testify. They were testifying to who Jesus is and what he had done. Um, and one of the themes though, that we've seen as, as these believers have been testifying, witnessing throughout the city of Jerusalem, is that there's also been a growing opposition, an opposition to this witness of Jesus' followers. And so we saw uh, back in chapter 3 that Peter and John were arrested for preaching about Jesus. They were commanded not to preach anymore. They were let go. And what did they do? They just went back to preaching. Yeah. And so then in chapter 5, we saw that... that that uh, the rest of the, the other apostles were arrested for preaching about Jesus. And this time they were flogged. And again, they were asked, don't preach in this name anymore. What do they do? They just go back to preaching. They just keep preaching and they're witnessing. And, and, but we see this growing opposition and anger and frustration building in, um, among the religious leadership in Jerusalem. Uh, last week, we looked at the, the, the beginning of chapter 6, where the apostles appointed seven Greek-speaking Jewish men to deal with a particular issue in the community with, with um, some widows from the, the Grecian Jews were being neglected. And, we, and, and so this week we're going to, to look at actually one of those men, one of those seven men. His name was Stephen. And Stephen, we're going to see in today's text, he, was, he began to engage as a witness again to some of the other Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem. But that got him into some trouble. And he, began, he was brought before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And we're going to see in our text today that the things finally escalate to the point where Stephen is actually killed for his faith. Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr um, of the church. And, and we're going to see, though, that, that the way that Stephen faced that was without fear. That Stephen had this amazing ability in the midst of all that was going on. He had this calmness and this and this freedom from fear. And so my sermon title today is No Fear. We're going to see how, how Stephen lived his life without fear and what we might be able to learn from, from his story. So in our text today, we're going to do, um, we're actually going to look at the beginning of Stephen's life, his story, and then we're going to jump to the end. And so we're going to kind of jump over a, a fairly large chunk in chapter 7, which is um, Stephen's speech or sermon that he gives to the Sanhedrin. But I wanted to take this whole chunk together because it's sort of telling one main story. And we'll reference maybe some elements in that that sermon too. But I'm going to read for us. We're going to start with Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. And then we're going to jump over um, in chapter 7 to verse 51, where we kind of pick up the end of his speech and what happens after. So uh, beginning with with Acts chapter 6, we'll begin with verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. Again, these are kind of the Greek-speaking world at the time. Uh, These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people 
and the elders and the teachers of the law, they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And at this point, at the beginning of chapter 7, the high priest asks, asks Stephen, are these charges true? And then Stephen gives this long speech where he goes through a lot of the history of the Old Testament. And he builds kind of up to how this is all pointing ahead to Jesus. So we're going to pick up again at the end of his speech, chapter 7, now jumping to verse 51, where Stephen says to the Sanhedrin, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for... This account, it's a sobering one of, of seeing, hearing the death of one of your beloved children, one of your saints, Stephen, Lord, that we know that um, you want to teach us through, through the life of Stephen and through what he went through, God, to shape us today, too. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear your spirit and, and uh, that you'd move among us, Lord, and, and teach us this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this account of the life of Stephen, I want to focus on two primary questions. Uh, the first is, how does Stephen show no fear? What are some ways that we see that in his life in this passage, ways that he shows no fear? And then the second question is, why does he have no fear? Why, why is he able to face this the way that he does? So the first question, how does Stephen show no fear? Well, the first way that we see Stephen kind of showing this fearlessness here, is that he isn't afraid of how people see him. He isn't afraid of how people view him, how people, what they think of him. 
Um, we see this at the beginning of our passage. We, we see that this, this opposition arose against Stephen from some of the members of a particular synagogue in Jerusalem. And from the names of the places where it says that these people were from, we can tell that, that it was a Greek-speaking synagogue. We talked about this a little bit last week, that there were Hebraic Jews and Grecian Jews, people who you know, spoke Aramaic, Hebrew, those who spoke in Greek. And so this was a Greek-speaking synagogue in Jerusalem. Um, and and we, Stephen was likely from that background too. So he's preaching and, and they begin to argue with Stephen, right? They don't like what he's saying. But we see right off the bat, Stephen isn't afraid of them. He isn't afraid to engage with them, to begin to, to convince, you know, to, to, to preach the gospel again. But then things start getting nastier. Verse 11 says, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. And so these, these, the members of the synagogue, they begin to slander Stephen and spread falsehoods about his message. You know, they begin to say, oh, he, he's, he's actually blaspheming Moses, when that's what, not what Stephen was doing. He's blaspheming God. Now, this is actually what happened to Jesus, too. Remember, Jesus, as he's preaching, they begin to say that he's, he's saying certain things that he's not. And so they start to stir up the people, and they seize Stephen. Stephen, they bring him before the Sanhedrin, which, again, is that ruling council in Jerusalem. And verse 13 says, they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. Now, there might have been a kernel of truth in what they were saying here. It's likely that Stephen had been teaching that Jesus had fulfilled the law, that he had come to fulfill the law of Moses. And that actually we see that some of those regulations were, were actually didn't apply afterwards, but, but and he also was probably teaching that, that what the temple had meant to do to deal with our sin, that Jesus had now accomplished that. He had fulfilled it in his death on the cross. But these false witnesses twist Stephen's words to say, he's, oh, he's against the temple. He's against Moses. He's against the law. He's, and they begin to, to build up that, that, he's, that he's against all of these markers, Moses, the law, the temple, and therefore he's against God himself. Now, I don't know about you, but this, this sort of thing is sort of like my worst nightmare. Um, the idea of having my words twisted into something that I haven't actually said or, or, or saying that I, don't, you know, that I support something that I don't actually support, it, it's sort of terrifying to me when I feel like someone is misunderstanding what I'm saying. Um, you know, over the past few years, um, there's some times where I've, I've like written um, a post on Facebook about my thoughts on like a particular issue or a current event. And I always try to be very careful when I do that, you know, to choose my words carefully, to see things from multiple perspectives. But almost without fail, there's always someone who will comment on that post and completely mischaracterize what I said. Or will say that, you know, I'm, I'm saying this and I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, but, but they misread it. And, if, and it really affects me when that happens. You can ask my wife, Rochelle, <laughs> when, that, when that happens. I get kind of um, frustrated. And if I'm honest, though, the reason for that, a big reason why it bothers me so much is that I care a lot about how other people see me. And I want people to like me. And I want them to affirm me. And so when that doesn't happen, it's really hard for me. And so what that really reveals in me, if I'm really honest, is that there is a fear in me of what people will say or how they might see me. 
And sometimes that fear can paralyze me or even cause me to shrink back from, from speaking about something that I feel conviction about because I'm afraid of how people will see it. Stephen, he doesn't show that kind of fear here. He's willing to, to, to lay it out and to speak the truth, even in the face of people twisting his words and not understanding, maybe. In the face of opposition and false witnesses and outright lies, Stephen remains calm. He remains confident. In, ver- in verse 15, it says, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, right? This is just after they've kind of accused him of all this stuff, and it says they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, to be honest, I'm not sure what that means exactly. I've never seen the face of an angel, so I don't know what the face of an angel looks like. I'm not sure how the members of the Sanhedrin knew what the face of an angel looked like either, but there must have been something about the quality of his face, sort of you know, a, a radiance, a holiness, a look of clarity and peace, the spirit within him that just, when they looked at him, they said there's nothing... This is, there's something otherworldly about the way that, that Stephen is responding to this, that the only thing they could do is compare it to a heavenly being. And then when Stephen actually responds to the accusations that were thrown at him, he doesn't get defensive. He doesn't start trying to defending himself, and he doesn't start attacking them either, or even trying to win over their approval. You know, saying, no, no, guys, you, you got me wrong, and I'm trying to... No, he just... He simply tells the story of God's work through the history of Israel, how it all culminates in Jesus. Because Stephen isn't afraid of how people see him. He's not not affected by that. He's much more concerned with speaking the truth with clarity and conviction. He wants to present the gospel to them. And he cares much more about that than he does even on how they see him. And this leads to the second way that Stephen shows no fear in this passage that he's also isn't afraid to confront sin. He isn't afraid to speak some hard truth to the Sanhedrin. The last part of Stephen's speech, which I read, um, pivots from his recounting God's work through Israel's history to directly confronting those religious leaders. Um, in, in, in verse 51, again of chapter 7, Stephen says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Woo! Stephen kind of goes off on them, right? He just like lays it out. Um, And and, in his speech, if you read his speech earlier than this, he highlights actually throughout the speech how Israel had done this very thing, that they continually were rejecting the prophets, that they were worshiping idols, you know? And so he says, you guys are actually following what your fathers did in Israel. You're, You're... now, rejecting one of God's, not just prophets, but God's own son, when you betrayed and killed Jesus. And so he's not afraid to confront the religious leaders with their sin, first with their betrayal and murder of Jesus. And then he says, you are continually resisting the Holy Spirit now, too. The Spirit is working, right? He's moving among the church, among Jesus' followers, but they are resisting it. Now, Stephen must have known when he used that kind of language, that they weren't going to take kindly to that, right? That they weren't going to, 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 it wasn't going to be well received. But again, Stephen, he's not afraid of that. He calls out their sin. He calls out their rebellion. Now, I realize that 
I am speaking primarily to New Yorkers here. And generally speaking, New Yorkers aren't afraid to confront people when they think that they're doing something wrong. Um, you cut me off in traffic, I'm going to let you know how wrong you were in what you just did, right? Laying on the horn. But oftentimes, our confronting people is often more about how they're bothering us, right? How they're annoying me. And so I'll confront them when it's bothering me. But it's less about confronting them for their good. Confronting them about something that actually I'm, I'm doing it because I actually care about them. I actually am wa- warning them about something. So, so oftentimes our confrontation can reflect more of a kind of self-righteous or judgmental attitude or an annoyance. And we see this, unfortunately, very clearly in the political realm. Um, Politicians have no problem confronting their opponents from the other party about their mistakes, right? They have no problem confronting them. But when someone from their own party is doing the same thing, oh, then it's excused and justified or ignored. And so it's not really about confronting them for their good. It's about wanting to win political points. It takes a lot more courage to confront someone from your side because it can cost you politically, right? It's, it, it costs you if you're, if you're gonna confront someone, you're, you, you might get shoved off to the side, even if it's the right thing to do, to be willing to point out, no, no, actually, the way you spoke about that, that, that was wrong. The same thing can happen also in personal relationships. We can be very willing to confront someone when they're doing something that affects us negatively. You know, you, know, you really should be more kind and patient with people. Meaning with me, really, is what we're kind of maybe saying to that person. But if they're caught up with some kind of sin that doesn't really affect me, but I know it's harming them, am I willing to say something then? When actually maybe confronting them or bringing out what, what I see is actually, it's, it's, they're trapped in sin they're, they're, and it's, it's affecting them. But I sometimes, we hesitate. Why? because of our fear of how they're gonna respond. If I say something, are they gonna get defensive? Are they gonna lash out at me? And so sometimes we just, we're, we just I wanna keep the peace and so I, I might not say anything. But Stephen here, he doesn't have that fear. He's willing to confront these leaders and he's not doing it just for his own sake because when he confronts them, it's actually gonna end up harming him, right? We're gonna see. So he's not doing it for his own sake. He's doing it for the sake of the gospel. He's doing it for the sake of even for them, saying, you guys are lost. You don't even know what you're doing. You're you're following in the footsteps of the rebellion of Israel. And he's trying to warn them of the path that they're going down, of resisting the Holy Spirit. And that leads then to the final way that, that Stephen shows no fear in this passage, that he also isn't afraid to die. He's not afraid to die. After Stephen confronts the Sanhedrin with their sin, verse 54 says, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. You can imagine again that frustration. How dare you say these things to us, Stephen? And then Stephen tells them that he's seeing this heavenly vision of Jesus at the right hand of God and they they just can't stand it anymore. They cover their ears, they yell at the top of their voices, they rush at him, drag him out of the city, and they begin to stone him, to throw these stones. But how does Stephen respond to all that? Verse 59 says, 
While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Can you imagine that? He's not afraid to die. He doesn't fight against them. He doesn't cry out for them to stop. He simply prays for Jesus to receive his spirit. How many of us could say with confidence that we would respond to death like Stephen did? I would like to say that, that I would if I was in that situation, but, but I'm not sure. Because I think if we're honest, when we look at the life of Stephen, it can feel convicting, actually. Stephen wasn't afraid of what people thought of him, but how many of us live our lives trying to please and gain approval from others? Stephen wasn't afraid to confront people with their sin. How many of us shrink back in certain circumstances because we know confronting someone might be uncomfortable and might cause tension in our relationship with them? Stephen wasn't afraid to die. But how many of us would be willing to give our lives for the sake of the gospel? And so the other question I'm going to look at today is, why does Stephen have no fear? I mean, what got him to that point where he was able to have that sense of of not being afraid of what other people thought of him, not being afraid to to confront someone out of love for them, out of of conviction of, of the gospel? What got him to the point of not even having fear of death? How might we begin to live life without fear as well? Well, the first reason why Stephen didn't have fear in this passage was because he knew who he was. He knew who he was. Throughout this passage, there are some different ways that Stephen is described. In in chapter 6, verse 8, it calls him a man full of God's grace and power. And then in in chapter 7, verse 54, it says that he's full of the Holy Spirit. And then um, in last week's passage, in in chapter 6, verse 5, it described him as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So these are the ways that that Stephen is described. This is sort of how his identity. Now, if you look at those descriptions carefully, you'll notice that all the words that describe Stephen are not about his accomplishments, his skills, his effort. They're all describing what has been given to him by God. He's full of God's grace meaning that he has received the unearned favor of God, being given something that he doesn't deserve. He's full of faith, which the Bible also describes as a gift from God, that he has been given faith to believe in what Jesus had done for him. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Is that something that he earned, that he somehow got? No, it's it's a gift from God. The, The power of God, again, something that God gave to Stephen. When Stephen was stoned, What did he pray? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knew that his spirit belonged to Jesus because Jesus had purchased him through his death and resurrection. So Stephen knew who he was and what he knew about himself, that his identity and his value, it was not based on what he had done, what he had accomplished. It was based on what had been given to him. It was based on what had been done for him, what Jesus had accomplished for him. And so it was rooted not in himself, but it was rooted outside of himself, in in Christ. And he knew that he was perfectly loved and accepted by God, and that this acceptance was unconditional, that it was eternal. And so guess what? 
Stephen didn't need the acceptance of the Sanhedrin because he had the full acceptance of the God of the universe. He didn't need the approval of those Greek-speaking Jews in that synagogue or the other religious leaders in Jerusalem. It didn't matter that they were slandering him or mischaracterizing his teaching because he knew what he believed. He knew what he was teaching with clarity and he knew that his standing and his value didn't come from how they saw him. It came from how God saw him. And he was loved and accepted by God. And so that's why he wasn't afraid of how people saw him. And that's also why he wasn't afraid to confront people about their sin. Because even if they didn't like what he said, he knew that his standing, his value, it came from Christ, not from how they saw him. The second reason why Stephen had no fear was because he knew where he was going. He knew who he was and he knew where he was going. As the members of the Sanhedrin are gnashing their teeth and preparing to seize him, to kill him, Stephen has this this amazing moment where in verse 55, it says that he looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. God opens up this amazing vision to Stephen of where he's going. Now, one interesting thing about this is usually when, when, when it talks about someone, Jesus, at the right hand of God, there's usually the language of sitting, that he's seated at the right hand of God. But in this vision, he's standing. And one of the commentaries I was reading, it was really interesting, said, you know what? It might have been like Jesus is standing up to welcome Stephen. He's sitting at the right hand, but here he's standing. And he knows that Stephen's about to come to be with him. And so Stephen, as he sees this vision of, of his Savior there, standing at the right hand of God, he knows that's where he's going. And so as, he, as, these, as the stones are raining down on his head, he says, Lord, receive my spirit. Because he knows where he's going. He knows that he's going to be with Jesus. So he doesn't have to fear death. Because death for him is it's just an entrance into eternity with his Lord. We see the same perspective in our scripture reading from, from Paul's letter to the Philippians that we heard read, read earlier by Rochelle. In Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How can Paul say that to die is gain? Because in verse 23, he continues, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. He says, you know, for your good, it's good for you that I stay. And, I, and I'm gonna, he's going to stay for a little while longer. But he says, to be with Christ, that is better by far. He's longing for the day when he will be with Christ in all of his fullness, like that vision that God opened up for Stephen. And because both Paul and Stephen knew that that was their future, they didn't fear death. And they also didn't really fear anything, even in life, because they knew all of this is temporary because they knew where their home is. And so the suffering that they went through and the opinions of other people and people misunderstanding, you know what, all of that, it's gonna fade because their home is in heaven. They know where they're going. Now I wanna acknowledge that this is not an easy perspective to keep at the forefront of your mind always, is it? Because when you're going through suffering, 
or if people are slandering you and falsely accusing you of things, it is natural to experience fear in the face of that. And it's easy to forget that our complete acceptance is in God when we're feeling rejected by other people, right? It's natural. It's easy for the pain and suffering of this life to overshadow the promise of eternal life with Jesus. And so this is why we need to continually hear the gospel proclaimed to us over and over and over again because we need to be reminded that that's who we really are and that's where we're going. And so we don't need to hear the gospel just once when we're, when we're saved. We need to hear it continually to be reminded that this is who we are. This is our identity, not what other people say, that this is where we're going. And one of the gifts that Jesus gives us to help us remember this is the Lord's Supper or communion, which we are going to have the opportunity to partake of this morning. Um, When we come to communion, one of the things that we do is we acknowledge our brokenness. We acknowledge our sin and our need. And, And so as we come to communion today, I want to invite you to come and acknowledge your fears. Acknowledge those ways that we have sometimes cared more about how other people see us rather than how how God sees us and how we've fallen short of this example that we see in Stephen's life. But as we come to communion, we also hear the good news that Jesus was willing to face death for us, that that he didn't have fear at all as he faced the cross. And he's fulfilled that for us He's paid for all of our sin. He accepts us. He promises a future with him for all of eternity. And so we get to hear the good news of who we are and where we're going when we partake of communion. Now, maybe you're here today and you don't really know who you are or where you're going when you die. And maybe you're trapped in some of these fears that that we've been talking about. And if that's you, I want you to know there's an invitation today to receive those same gifts that Stephen was given, the fullness of God's grace and the gift of faith to believe in Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit and God's power in your life, that all those things that define Stephen, guess what? They're not just for these amazing holy people like Stephen. They're for all of us. They're they're extended to each and every one of us to, to receive And if you find yourself today wanting those gifts and believing that Jesus has accomplished everything for you to receive them, then guess what? They're yours. They're yours. Your identity can be the same as Stephen's and your future can be the same as his. So receive these good gifts to you if you haven't received them before. And if you have received these good gifts, if you know who you are in Christ and where you're going because of Jesus, then rest in that knowledge and live your life without fear because there is nothing to fear. There's no fear left in light of who Christ is and who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. The way that Stephen faced opposition and death, it was a tremendous witness to the power of the gospel to transform. And we can be witnesses as well in our lives. 
as we receive the power of the gospel to do that work within us, as we begin to live lives that we say, you know what? I really don't care how other people see me. I'm going to just, I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to live my life for him. That is an incredible witness to the power of the gospel to transform us. And so we get to be his witnesses in this world, living our lives like Stephen did, without fear, as the Lord transforms us from the inside out. So let's pray together as we, um, as we go into a, a, a time of worship and then as we prepare to receive the gift of, of communion. Lord, we acknowledge that, that we, often we are trapped in fear. That sometimes, Lord, we are afraid of how people see us. We are afraid of, of ways that people may be misunderstanding us. Or we are afraid sometimes, Lord, to, to actually maybe speak a hard, hard word to someone because we're afraid of how they'll receive it, how they might take it. Lord, even though we know that maybe you're, you're actually prompting us to do that, to actually share something, Lord, not, not to, 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 to bash them over the head, not to make ourselves feel justified, but, but actually out of love for them and in gentleness, as, as we hear Paul talk about in Galatians. And, and Lord, we are, we're sometimes so wrapped up in fear that, that we can even be afraid of the reality of suffering and even of death in this world. And, and so we pray, Lord, that you would, you would forgive us for the moments where we sometimes shrink back in fear, in times where we where we really fall short of this example of Stephen as we look at his life. We thank you, God, that you, you don't see us based on our failures. You don't see us based on our inability, our, our fears, Lord, but that you see us through the lens of Christ. Lord, that you have paid for our sin. You've paid for all the ways that we've failed. That, Jesus, you took our failure and our sin and our weakness upon yourself. And that when we receive that gift, Lord, that that you see us clothed in Christ's righteousness. You see us as, as people who have no fear, Lord, because Jesus had no fear. You, you, you attribute that to us. You, 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 you give that to us, Lord. You, um, Lord, we, we, we're grateful for the fact that you do that. And so we pray that as we receive that good gift of, of, of who we are, Lord, that our identity is in you, that that would empower us, Lord, to live lives of boldness, to live lives that are witnessing to who you are and lives that, are, that don't have that sort of fear. And so we thank you, God, for giving us the Holy Spirit. We see that throughout this passage that Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's part of what empowered him to live this life without fear. So fill us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit to live lives that are not characterized by fear, but lives that are characterized by faith and by boldness in you. And so we pray that you do that work in us, God. It's only your work that can do that. Do that in us, Lord, as we enter into this time of worship to surrender our lives again to you, to do that in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.